I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 1 Timothy 3, this is a, a study on the qualifications of spiritual leadership. This has been uh, the end of our church health series that's been extended into a mini-series where I just felt like the Lord wanted us to sit down and land for a little while on what it means to be a spiritual leader. And not that you are necessarily called to spiritual leadership within this local church, you may be, uh, but to strive for the standard of spiritual leadership nevertheless, because we're all given a spiritual gift We're all given a calling to serve with our gift within the body of Christ. This morning is the ministry fair where we have the different tables, and I would encourage you not to uh, neglect the opportunity of walking from table to table and prayerfully considering where might you plug in? Where are you supposed to use your spiritual gift? And for you not to underestimate the power of using your spiritual gifts That's very important, according to God's word. Because the Holy Spirit, when he saves you, he promises to gift you. Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So it's important for you to think not just uh, individually, but interdependently as gifts and members of the body of Christ and for you to ask yourself, how can I serve? How can I jump in? How can I enjoy the blessing of God by being used here at Anchorage Grace Church or whatever local church you are a part of? There's a beautiful balance between spiritual leaders who are officially spiritual leaders, those who are elders, those who are as the same office as elder, overseer, or pastor, those who are in leadership that uh, we as the body of Christ are to be submissive to, but also deacons and deaconesses, which we're going to be talking about more as we explore 1 Timothy 3. Those are official serving roles where people are qualified and set apart to serve in unique, specific ways. And then for the rest Just as the body of Christ, we're all leading ourselves and being led by the Holy Spirit as we use our gifts in ministry together. Don't underestimate the influence you have within the body of Christ, because if one member of the body is sick or ailing, it's affecting the whole. And if all are healthy or striving for health, it's affecting the whole. And this is our Christian witness. This is our Christian testimony in the community. The church is a place filled with the variety of gifts, the variety of people, men and women, different races, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, but we're all blended together to be used in a powerful way with the most incredible thing in common that we possibly could share, and that is Christ. Christ we proclaim. So when people come in, they should sense that God is here because God is the only reasonable explanation for why we would all be in such harmony and such unity and such usefulness together. There should be a spirit in the place, an atmosphere in the place where people say, this place is different than any gathering I've ever been a part of, and I can't help but being compelled to ask why. Why is this a different place? Why is this a unique place? And it's unique because of transformed lives. So we're exploring 
1 Timothy 3 this morning to look at what is the standard for what we should all strive to be in Christian holiness and Christian usefulness. And I would say this, if you're trying to explore what your spiritual gift is, it's important to not think first and foremost in terms of what you should do. But as I've said for the last couple of weeks, it's more important to ask yourself who you are, who you are spiritually. And the way to do that is to ask yourself who you are and how you're doing spiritually in concert with the scripture. And what we have here in 1 Timothy 3 are a couple of lists. And the first list is the qualifications of the elder, which is also the qualifications of a pastor or overseer, one office, three different titles. And then you have the office of deacon and deaconess or men and women who are set apart to serve. And these qualifications should apply to all of us as we strive to be like Christ. Last week, we learned um, the first qualification is to be above reproach. First Timothy 3, verse 2, it means to be blameless. You're not perfect, but you're cleaning up your messes in the gospel of grace. You're not leaving things undone in your life. You're willing to examine yourself. You're willing to work hard within your own spiritual life so that you don't have any kind of unaddressed reproach in your life. You're working that way. First, or Titus 1.6 reflects the same command of being above reproach. It says, if anyone is above reproach, so that anyone means everyone should strive to be above reproach. Secondly, the husband of one wife, this doesn't mean that you're only supposed to be married once in your lifetime. It means that you are a one-woman man. Elder being a male office, it means that you are married to one person, not only, not only practically, not only legally, but you're married to one person in your heart and in your mind. You're focused on the one individual in Christian purity. The marriage bed shall not be defiled. This is... An incredibly important attribute of a spiritual leader to be a one-woman man because it keeps you focused. It keeps your conscience clear as you live for Christ. Thirdly, sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. I put these three qualifications together because they seem to harmonize well under the banner of being serious, being sober-minded, being dignified. This is... Contra to what our world says is fun, being spontaneous and being crazy and being free and banal frivolity. But instead, we should be countercultural and say, you know what? There are some things that are very, very serious. Heaven is very, very serious. Eternal life is very, very serious. The joy of what we possess spiritually in knowing God is very, very serious. Being sent to hell is very, very serious. The eternal consequences of eternal punishment is very, very serious. We handle the message, which is the key deliverance for people either going to hell or to heaven. And that is the gospel. And because we as the church possess that key, we should hold it dear in our hearts and in our lives. And we should be willing to speak seriously to people about Christ. I think what is missing in Christianity today, far more than the inability for us to connect with people, is our 
disconnect, our willingness to disconnect with people and say, look, I'm not going to act that way. I'm not going to walk that way. I'm not going to join in those kinds of ways and those kinds of activities, those kinds of things. I'm going to be set apart in self-control, in sober-mindedness, in seriousness. I'm not going to be controlled by the wine of this world, but I'm going to be controlled by a renewed mind and controlled by the Holy Spirit, understanding what the will of the Lord is. This clear-mindedness, this clear thinking is what we need in a day and age where things are going kind of wild, aren't they? Very topsy-turvy in our culture, very counterintuitive in our culture to what we know to be true. Lies are being uh, pervaded throughout news, throughout um, just what used to be normal and, and black and white and understandable now is being blurred in so many ways on so many levels with immorality and with, with weird, strange things that tell us to jettison scripture and jettison truth where we'll stand out as we soldier on for Christ. We're called to be athletes, farmers and soldiers to be serious minded. Well, fourthly, we learned hospitable. We learned about being hospitable. Hospitality is not just a female quality. It is something that is very feminine and and useful in terms of women keeping their home and using it as a haven for ministry, first to their families and then also to outsiders. But this attribute of being hospitable is directed toward men. It's directed toward the office of eldership. It's the idea of being open with your things, not clinging to stuff, but being willing to share even with strangers and being helpful. One of the things that I've been able to enjoy this year uh, sort of happened by accident. My wife uh, taught 11th grade Bible and one of the activities that she arranged um, was to have people contribute to um, to basically a um, backpacks and, and to contribute to a pile of, of goods to be able to give out um, goods to people who are homeless. And so what happened was, was by the end of the year, we, we had neglected to give out all of the backpacks. We gave out some of them, but, but some of them were just intermixed into the backseat of my car. And I like to keep things in backpacks, like, like my kids keep school books in backpacks and we keep different things in there. But we also had canned goods and we had, um, you know, just basic needs, socks and shoes and, and scarves and mittens and things that kids from Grace Christian School had contributed And it's just a wonderful blessing sometimes to be able to stop and strike up a conversation with someone in need and give them a backpack and say, here's a tangible gift. Well, that should be part and parcel of all of our lives and all of our experiences within the role of being hospitable. It's a call to be vulnerable with your stuff, vulnerable with your dwelling where you live. Well, next you see uh, kind of my fifth category, able to teach. Elders have to be able to handle the word of God. They need to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. The church holds up the truth as the pillar in support of it. We are the beacon of light, the lighthouse. So you should be asking yourself maybe whether or not you are called to eldership, whether you have the desire to be an elder, in terms of do I want to preach the word of God? Do I want to teach the word of God? Do I see myself in my mind's eye setting apart hours in the week to study the truth? Do I want to read the truth, not just for my own soul, but read it to give it, read it to live it, read it to distribute it as bread to hungry people? 
That's the call to be an elder. That's the call to be a spiritual leader. You should be thinking, I want to follow the Great Commission and teach all that Christ has commanded and to distribute that. Women, though you're not called to be an elder, you should also be a distributor of truth to fellow women, to women who are younger than you spiritually. You should be giving out the word of God. Word ministry is not just a man's field. Word ministry is something that should be connected to your life. You shouldn't underestimate how much study you should undergo and the theology that you should know. I always like John Piper's uh, um, basic phrase about women. Women should have backbones of steel and heads full of theology. You know, knowing the truth and being able to give it to children. One of the greatest ministries that you can have is being a discipler of children, whether your own children or your spiritual grandchildren or your grandchildren or children who are spiritually those who are given to your care in Sunday school class to give the word of God. Very important to do and to have that ministry. Well, next you see, and we we talked about this last time, not being a drunkard, not being a drunkard, not being someone who's given to alcoholism, not being someone who's controlled by something that is inebriating, where it, it clouds your judgment or takes your mind where it should not go. Also, we talked about Um, verse three, not being violent. You can't be a quarreling elder. You can't be someone who's always defensive and wanting to put up their dukes. You can't be someone who's up for a fight at, you know, at the drop of a hat. Being quarrelsome is being a bully. It's imposing your will, imposing yourself to get your way. The Bible says in James 4 that quarrels and fights are stirred up because we have, we don't, we aren't getting what we want in life and that's a definite gut check uh, for all of us not to be quarrelsome. And then not to be a lover of money, not to be possessed by things, not to be someone who's, who's out to get everything they can in this world. Because as 1 Timothy 6 says, we can't take anything out of the world. We can't take anything with us. The child's um, song is um, indicting and kind of clear. It's the idea that, you know, your hurts won't have a U-Haul behind it, Right. There, there won't be something that you're, you're taking to heaven with you when you die, right? It's all stripped down. The Lord owns everything anyway. And so much um, goes into what we have or what we do not have. And really, in our own spiritual lives, we should strive to be content, whether you have much or you have little. Being content, being godly, because God knows what you need and gives you everything that you need every single day day. Well, sort of the ninth category was um, being a manager of his own household. Manage your your own household well, verse 4, with all dignity, keeping your children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Managing is literally ruling over your household. It's taking ownership for the spiritual atmosphere of your home. It's believing the gospel as a husband and as a father to a level where your children see that you truly believe. If your kids don't believe what you believe, then it's something telling in terms of your own personal convictions. It's understanding that your children do not outrank you. 
They do not outlead you, and you should be someone who's always reminding your kids in gentleness and love and directives and in firmness that you are the leader because God has made you the leader. You're someone who holds the line and you're winning your children's hearts. You're not just guiding them to an external obedience. You're actually wanting, as Titus 1.6 says, children who believe. You want them to believe. You don't want to be passive. You want to be an active, active leader. Well, this brings us to our 10th qualification, at least the way I have um, categorized them. The 10th one is not being a recent convert, verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he will become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. What does it mean to be a new convert? Well, that is neophuton in the original language where we get the English word neophyte, someone who is newly planted, newly planted, a new convert. You say, well, how do you know who's new and who's not new? Well, first of all, you have to understand that age really is not the issue in terms of the qualification. There are a lot of older people who are newly converted who, even because they are old, doesn't mean that they are ready to be or qualified to be an elder. Um, Likewise, someone who could be young in their 20s or 30s, for instance, young spiritually, Um, or young physically speaking, they might be older spiritually speaking. They might have been converted as a child or a teenager and have grown in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ for a long time. So years are not really the determining factor for what is being talked about here. Spiritual maturity is always the issue. There's many aged saints who are less mature than they ought to have been By now, that's also the case. There's older people who just decided that they're not going to try to grow. And there's also young men who are wise beyond their years. Psalm 119, I'm not exactly sure that David wrote Psalm 119. I like to think that he did. Verse 99 says this. The psalmist confesses, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Think about that. Let that sink in for a second. Think about that if you were going to college and you're sitting under a professor who is by his own you know, self-congratulating um, pride saying, I know everything. And you know, you guys out there, don't, y'all don't know anything. That's often the posture that an arrogant professor will take when he's trying to take the upper hand. When in actuality, if you know the origin of the universe, if you know why molecules and atoms cohere and hold together. If you understand the mysteries of what happens when someone dies and where they go, if you have some kind of understanding uh, between the difference between a person's physicality and then the spiritual reality of the inner man, if you understand what it means to love one another and answer the question of the animosity between the races and cultures within the world, then you know a lot. And what I think scholarship wants to say is you really can't, when it's boiled all down to its irreducible minimum, you really can't know the answers to those things. But ah, as Christians, we do know the answers to those questions because we have the living, abiding Word of God. 
We understand more than any secular-minded person why we are here and what we are supposed to do. Isn't that amazing? You can understand those things even in middle school or youth group and, and walk in and be wiser than those who are your teachers. Now, we don't want that to push us to arrogance. We should be humbled by the word of God. But the truth does set us free in a unique way. Timothy was known to be a younger man, someone who would be perhaps at a disadvantage taking over the pastorate in Ephesus. He shouldn't be viewed as someone who was just timid or scared. He was just someone in probably his mid-30s who had a tall order to shepherd a very prominent church. Perhaps one that church history says the, the Apostle John attended, who you know at Passover laid across the Lord Jesus' chest. It's amazing. The disciple whom Jesus loved would have been then the congregation that Timothy, as a young man, was called to preach the word of God to. There were also, as you see through First and Second Timothy, controversies and enemies and people who were trying to rip the church, church apart from the inside, who would want to despise and look down upon Timothy and, and take his credibility away. Well, Paul said this in First Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Well, how do you gain credibility? Is it earned? Well, somewhat. But credibility ultimately is just spiritual godliness and the grace of God in your life, right? God is the one who gifts you. He's the one that puts you in certain situations. Perhaps you feel like Timothy and you're going, I can't do it. I can't lead that Bible study. There's no way I could have that conversation with that person. I am unqualified to move forward in ministry. I I don't feel worthy or worthwhile whatsoever. Well, if you're trying to earn credibility and earn your way out of that, guess what? You're going to be a defeated young man or a defeated older man or you're going to be a defeated young lady or older woman in the body of Christ if you're trying to perform your godliness to a standard that is unachievable. Ultimately, you have to say, listen, God, you've given me gifts. You've given me abilities. I know I'm a sinner saved by grace. I know I'm not from my perspective, if I'm judge, jury, and executioner, worthy to serve. But I'm going to serve because, God, you've called me to serve. You've gifted me to serve. You've given me the circumstances that I can serve in. And so I'm going to try to watch how I live. The example, the tupas, or the imprint of my speech, my conduct, the way I live, my heart, the way I love people going to go out. I'm going to put myself out there in terms of faith. I'm going to believe the Lord for my opportunity. I'm going to believe true doctrine. I'm going to read myself clear in the word of God, and I'm going to strive for personal holiness and let the grace of God vindicate my testimony. Isn't that a whole lot more freeing than trying to perform your way into some sort of acceptable status to serve? I often think, listen, Most people do not serve within the body of Christ, not because they don't have time to do it. It's because your conscience is smitten. You you don't want to put yourself out there because you don't think that you're supposed to be out there. You think, I can't swim in those waters. I'm not qualified. I've got issues. If people knew what was really going on inside of me, then I can never serve. But that's not what God's word says for you to do. You repent of those things and then step out in boldness and in faith 
and serve and watch God lift you up into a stride that you say, man, I can't believe I ever didn't serve in this way. I mean, I, I'd hate to embarrass anyone, but um, Mike Taylor, you're just so unabashedly, you know, a Christian and out there. I mean, if someone tried to take um, your cubby's leadership from you, I mean, what would happen? I mean, Mike Taylor is the face of the Cubbies ministry, the blue shirts, you know, all the children that are coming in. And he's the warm, smiling, welcoming father figure to these children. And I don't, I, knowing Mike and his um, humility, I know I've completely put you on the spot, but he, you just do it out of service, out of the overflow of God's calling in your life. And you love these kids and they know that they're loved. But that's something that's part and parcel of his life. And we're all busy. We all don't have time to do it. But once you're doing it, you think, man, how did I ever live without doing the work of the ministry in this particular way or that? Well, the word elder, I want to say, it does mean literally aged. It is the word presbyteroi, where the denomination Presbyterian comes from. But it's talking about people who are spiritually aged. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word zakan is, um, speak, speaks of men who are bearded. Joel 2.28 says older men will dream dreams. They were the delegated leaders under Moses, under the advice of Jethro. They were the 70 elders appointed by Moses in Numbers 11. They're delegates of the city in 1 Samuel 16 that went out to meet Samuel. They were the temple builders in the book of Ezra. There is the idea of being father-like when you are an elder, but age is not really the qualifier. It is the spirituality. I would ask you, turn in your Bibles over to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, This is a section that gives some categories of where you are spiritually and a way for you to evaluate your own life. These are categories I remember being discipled. I mentioned my older brothers here. He actually taught me what I'm about to teach you. Talk about 2 Timothy 2, 2 things passing down. He was the first person who exposed me to these categories in 1 John. It's the idea that you're either a child in the faith, you're a young man in the faith, or you're a father in the faith. 1 John 2.12, John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. Let's stop there. John is saying, as an aged apostle, by the way, the last living apostle, and there could have been perhaps other living apostles at the time of this writing, but he's an aged man writing to churches in Asia Minor, and he's warning them to not get out in front of themselves spiritually, calling them to be humble enough to identify where they are. He says, little children, little technion, children in the faith, those who are not ready for the meat of the word of God, but should be longing for the pure milk of the word of God. Your sins are forgiven. Why are you a child of God? Because you're saved. You're in. You're a new believer. You are this neophyte. You're a newly planted new convert. Then then he compares this with fathers. You see that in verse 13. Because you know him who is from the beginning. What does this mean? Don't children know God the Father? Yes, they do. They know God the Father. They should 
begin to understand God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There should be some awareness of the Trinity. I'm telling you, as a young believer, though, that's a very difficult thing to grasp. It's really something difficult to grasp, no matter what phase of spiritual life you're in. But a father compared to a child is someone who has plumbed the depths of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. A father is someone who is aware of the multifaceted attributes of God. Uh, A father is someone who realizes that, you know, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. A father is somebody who goes, I know God who is from the beginning, who's from the beginning of time. I know God is the one who spoke everything into existence and by his word holds all things together, right? God is holy, holy, holy. There are cherubim and seraphim who are declaring that and he is, and they're in his ineffable presence covering their eyes and covering their feet because he's too holy to behold. And yet at the same time, this God loves me. And I'm unworthy to be loved in that way. That's what it means to be a father. And a child is growing in that. But a father is someone who has begun to scratch the surface of that. And then it says, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Write to you children because you know the father. Again, a child knows the father. They know him personally. They just don't know all about him as much as they will know him in years to come. But a young man here is someone who's not yet at a father stage. A young man is someone who has overcome some of Satan's schemes. It's where you begin to know as a believer that you're safe and secure in the beloved. No one can snatch you from the father's hands. You remember grasping that and going, my eternal security is sure. Nothing shall separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, it's where you just go, man, I am a child of God and Satan is real. He's a roaring lion. He's tempting me to think certain ways. And I'm understanding that I'm not just wrestling against flesh and blood and just trying to figure things out on a physical level. There is a supernatural level that's going on. There are real temptations, real ensnarements that I'm trying to avoid And as a young believer, I'm beginning to resist the devil and realize that he will flee from you, right? The devil wants you to think wrong things. He wants to to get you to doubt your eternal security. He wants you to doubt the full humanity and the full deity of Christ. Have you ever had those temptations? Those are real. Now, some of those debates are academic But the academia suddenly can become realities in your own mind, in your own thinking, where you say, is Jesus really 100% God? And yet in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was saying, if this cup can pass from me, please take it from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, which is full humanity. And yet he's fully deity at the same time. Where Jesus on the cross is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's saying that in his full humanity and his full deity because God, very God, was dying for us on the cross. And yet he died as a human once and for all for us so that that sacrifice was worthy in his deity and fully acceptable and genuine in his humanity. A young 
believer is beginning to explore those concepts, is beginning to understand that there are real fiery darts that are being flung into his or her mind, and you're overcoming that. And by overcoming that, guess what? You are growing in grace. So you have these three categories. You have uh, a child who is saved. You have a young man who knows the word of God. And you have fathers who are plumbing the depths of who God is in great depth with the word of God. These are real phases. And they should be real categories that you think about in terms of your own life. And you should be realistic with where you are. Don't be ashamed to be a child of God. Please do not hear me to say, oh, well, you're not a young man yet, or you're not a father yet. Listen, we're just glad to be in, right? To be in Christ and have Christ in us. And as you grow in grace, you can say, Lord, bring me to a greater depth and knowledge. When you are a neophyte, though, if you're placed in leadership, the danger is simply this. If you're not someone who is skilled in the word of God, the danger is to rely on worldly experiences or worldly methods that can lead to personal pride. That's what Paul is warning the church from commending. You don't want someone in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 3 to be a recent convert, a newly planted person, or he may become puffed up with conceit. It's the idea of billows of smoke coming in up in front of a person's face where a person gets clouded in their judgment, where they can't make good spiritual decisions because they're relying on the flesh. They don't have a depth of knowledge in the word of God. They've not been battle-tested fighting against Satan in the wilderness like Christ did. Remember, Christ resisted the devil in three different ways. He wouldn't bow down. He wouldn't tempt the Lord. He wouldn't turn stones into bread. He wouldn't do these things because he resisted Satan. And that was affirmation. Well, if as a new believer, you haven't gone through that gauntlet through many years of understanding and testing, then when you're put into the epicenter of the battle, you might not be ready to know what to do in that moment. People become puffed up They become clouded in their judgment, become blind in stupidity. Pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16 says. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. It's falling into condemnation. It's falling into judgment. What does this mean? What kind of condemnation are we talking about? Is Paul saying that if you strive to be a spiritual leader, and you're put into a position of spiritual leadership and you're not qualified to be there, that you're condemned like Satan is condemned? I mean, we know Satan's doom is sure. He fell out of heaven with a third of the stars, uh, which are angels. He was cast to the earth, Revelation 12, 4 says. We know that um, Genesis 3.15 is the prophecy that Christ on the cross shall bruise Satan's head, which he was... His doom was assured at the cross. His head was crushed, though for now he's still loose and free as a roaring lion. His doom is sure. Christ saw Satan fall like lightning, and that's a picture of how his doom is certain. Satan is under condemnation. 
We know Isaiah 14, 12 is attributed to Satan's pride, where it says, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend upon the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Ezekiel 28 says basically the same thing. Revelation 20.10 is the prophecy of Satan's final condemnation. And says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what, what is the issue of condemnation for someone who's wrongly placed into spiritual leadership? Well, the condemnation, I don't think, is the same condemnation in the sense of the ultimate con- condemnation in hell that we're talking about. I believe the condemnation that is going on here is the condemnation of pride. Satan was arrogant. Satan was saying, I will ascend, I will ascend, I will ascend. He was he fell to his own self-delusion, and he was delusional. And what happens for a person who's affirmed too quickly, where the elders lay hands on someone prematurely, First Timothy 5, 22, do not be hasty on the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The sins that take place when someone is affirmed too soon is, are the sins of pride, And that's what we're talking about. That's what's keeping company with the devil in a verse like this. You're keeping company with the devil in terms of your own pride if you're not supposed to be there. It's being delusional. And ultimately, it takes you out of being useful in service. and can harm many others. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This again is the same kind of uh, condemnation. It's being sidelined. To be ensnared by Satan means that you're ensnared in your own conscience. It's where a person's in a catch-22. They want to reach the outsiders. They want to reach the world for Christ, but they've disgraced themselves because of their attitudes or because of their action. Their testimony, which is the word martyria, um, for thought of here in verse 7, they must be thought of by outsiders, well thought of. They must have a well martyria. They must have a good witness or a good quality of witness before others. When your witness is messed up, when you're filled with pride, if you're someone who, as a believer, is involved in things where you're not sober-minded, not self-controlled, not respectable, not hospitable, if you can't really teach, if, if you're a drunkard, if you're violent, if you're quarrelsome, if you love money and people know that, then ultimately, outsiders aren't going to really believe in you. They're not going to believe your testimony is good. Well, you say, As a Christian, isn't isn't the world supposed to hate me? Didn't Jesus say that the world will hate you as it hated him? John 15, 18. Well, that's true. But you want to be hated for the right stuff, right? (laughs) Right? I mean, you don't want to be hated for being, you know, a womanizer or a drunkard or violent. You want to be hated because you love Christ, because you believe in the narrow road, because you believe in the gospel. 
You want your speech to be gracious and seasoned with salt, Colossians 4, 5. You want to be someone who's not disgracing Christ, verse 7, falling into disgrace. It's someone who is put in spiritual leadership, who thinks they're going to make it, and suddenly they stumble and fall, and they're a disgrace. They weren't expecting to fall, but they did nevertheless. But even still, you're not, a, you're not Satan's captive if this happens. It's something where spiritually you're harming the body of Christ, but it doesn't mean that you are condemned to hell. It means your joy is robbed and your conscience is guilty. And perhaps um, someone should, if they find themselves in a position that they're in over their head, whether it's eldership or the deaconship or, or any spiritual leadership, there's no shame in setting aside your opportunity for a time and growing. It's like I mentioned, we grow in our qualifications and perhaps you just go into a greater level of accountability and stay in that position, but you recognize with humility that you have to grow in your qualifications. I know as a an elder, I was an elder at a church in Little Rock when I was an associate pastor, and I started at age 26. And I really didn't say a whole lot in the elders meeting, probably for about, I don't know, five years. You just don't say a whole lot because you know that you're really growing in your own qualifications. You're trying to figure it out. You're trying to learn. And we all are sobered by these qualifications. Let me say this. Only one person came up to me after the service last week, right? Because everybody, I think, felt the weight of the word of God. I went up to my teenagers and they said, oh, oh that, that was heavy, Dad. That was heavy. So I get it. I, I, one time, one summer, was, you know, I was studying for ministry in my undergraduate level. And I remember listening to a tape series on the qualifications. And I had a deep lump in my throat and hard swallowing summer thinking about where I was and where I needed to be spiritually. I understand that these are weighty qualifications, that these are serious things to try to live up to. And ultimately, you can only be qualified in ministry because of one thing, grace, the grace of God in your life. What is God doing in your life right now to set you apart in ministry in service, and not just to be an elder, but to do anything, to do anything. We're just trying to strive to be like Jesus Christ. He's the only one that ever, ever was truly blameless. Well, this leads us into uh, the second half of my sermon, which is to begin to talk about deacons and deaconesses. I'm going to start um, this and we'll, um, we'll pull up quickly. But verse 8, look at verse 8. This is the second list in First Timothy 3. It says, deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let me say this. The word deacon is a verb and it is a noun. In Acts 6, it's a verb. It's, it's also a verb in Psalm 104, speaking of Angels as deacons of fire or ministers of fire. Hebrews 1 7, same Greek word for diakonoi or diakonon. These, this is uh, 
a word that's a verb that's really been transliterated to the word deacon in our English vernacular. The word deacon could be swapped with the word minister or ministering or doing the ministry or serving, serving the Lord with gladness. Now, are elders called to deacon? Yes, if you use it verbally. Are, is any Christian called to deacon? Yes, we should all be deaking all the time, right? Or deaconing. Hey, you've been deaking, lady? Yeah, yeah, I've been deaking. I, I'm serving, I'm ministering, I'm giving. We're called to be like Christ, Mark ten forty five. Not to be served, but to serve. Not to be deaconed, but to deacon. And give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 4.39, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. She stood over and he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And she immediately rose and began to deacon them, begin to serve them. Romans 13.4, police officers, those who are in governing authority. Romans 13, they're a servant for your good, for he is the servant of God. This is deaconing. 1 Corinthians 3, 5, Apollos, Paul, they were servants. They were deacons through whom you believe. 2 Corinthians 6, 4, but as servants of God, as deacons of God, this is Paul. This is his testimony. He says, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. We'll turn over to Acts 6. We'll just scratch the surface here. We've looked here before. Acts 6 uh, is what some call the proto-deacons. Whenever you're dealing in the book of Acts, you want to realize that it is the Acts of the Apostles. Do you know that? The book of Acts is a a book that is chronicling or is a historical record of the early church. And in particular, the actions of the Apostles. That's where you get the word Acts. John Stott put it rightly. He said, if we didn't have the book of Acts, we wouldn't really know anything at all about the early church. We wouldn't. This is our history book that God gave us for understanding the early church. But because there are no more apostles, it's important for us to understand that this is a book of the Bible that's giving an early church record of some things that happened back then that don't necessarily happen today. Like we don't have apostles today. And so we don't see some of the apostolic ministries that we read of back then. So this book of the Bible is very descriptive. It describes things, but it's not necessarily prescriptive or prescribing exactly how we're supposed to act in the church today. We have the rest of the epistles written by Paul to fill out the applications of the book of Acts and how we should look and feel and work within New Testament dynamics. Well, if you look here at verse one, it says, now in these days, When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Verse 4, here's the key again, the key refrain. But we, the apostles, we will will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This This shouldn't be an exact application. I mean, in one sense, we don't know how many deacons should be called or set apart within any particular church, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be seven. This isn't prescribing seven deacons. And this is a male role, or at least men were those who were selected in this case 
to be deacons, but I'm going to prove to you from 1 Timothy 3 that deacons and deaconesses exist. Also from the book of Romans, we see Phoebe was a deaconess. And so this isn't a one-for-one exactly for how the New Testament deacon role should be um, played out. But the prioritization is what I want to point out here of the word of God. Look at verse 2 again. Basically, you had Greek-speaking Jews who... As the church was growing and expanding geographically outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, you had Christians who were Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. And they were saying, look, there are the haves and the have-nots. The Hebrew Jews are the ones who are getting all the favoritism and and the widows are not being neglected, but our widows are being neglected. This was a church-splitting accusation. This was a dividing line that could have been horrible in the early church. And the apostles, they summoned disciples to talk this through and to think through the prioritization of what to do. And instead of the apostles running headlong into physical service, they said, look, we can't neglect the preaching and the study of God's word for serving tables. We can't neglect, verse 4, the ministry of prayer, which also could extend to shepherding ministry, praying for people, laboring with people, helping people, counseling people, and the ministry of the word. We can't neglect that for service. It needs to be a unifying teamwork operation where you have leaders who are devoted to the ministry of the word and prayer and those who are given to behind the scenes, hands and feet service. And again, it doesn't mean that the apostles or in our case in the New Testament church, elders shouldn't serve. We should roll up our sleeves and serve too. It's just designating people because there's an actual office of deacon and deaconess designating people to serve for the purpose of freeing up word ministry and shepherding ministry is very biblical. That's what we find here in Acts chapter 6. A precedent is set for the prioritization of setting apart people for the word of God. Mark Dever put it this way. He said, deacons help to bind the church together with cords of kindness and loving service. They are church builders. Do you ever think of that? Why should I become a deacon or deaconess? Because I want to unify the church. Because I want to build it together with the, with the cords of love. I want to free up people, men, to study the word of God. I want to free up women's classes where they can study the word of God and teach women. I want to free up Sunday school teachers. It's hands and feet ministry. And it doesn't mean you can't teach if you're a deacon or a deaconess. I mean, again, there's wonderful overlap and synergy in all these things. But it's just designating this for the prioritization of the word. Romans 16.1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a diakonos in the feminine use of the church of Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints to help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. It's a testimony that we all should have.